Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. How does the lower middle class son of a Colombian farmer and a school teacher become the first drug dealer to show up on Forbes' list of the world's wealthiest people? With a net worth rumored to have been as high as $30 billion. A dude making so much legal cashola, he was spending over $2,500 a month on rubber bands just to wad it all together. A dude losing millions to literal rats, actual rats, eating his piles of cash in off-the-grid tropical forest warehouses full of American money he didn't care about losing because he had what seemed like a never-ending supply coming back in. So much cash, he was burying giant bags of it in farmers' fields. He was hiding it in the walls of cartel members' homes. How'd you like to have wads of $100 bills instead of fiberglass for insulation? I wouldn't mind it. He once burned $2 million just to keep his daughter warm when they were on the run from the police. How does one man get that much fucking money? For Pablo, he got it by supplying 80% of the world's cocaine supply at the height of his power in the 80s when everyone wanted a bumper line. At one point, he was shipping 15 tons of coke into the United States a day. He was making $420 million a week. The 80s are known for an abundance of coke use, and anyone who snorted it in the 80s had an 80% chance of snorting some of Pablo's powder, and everyone knew who he was and what he was doing. So why did it take over a decade to bring him down? Having more money than entire nations and his own paid army of assassins who killed hundreds of police officers didn't hurt. The man waged war against his government, and for a very long time, he won. He assassinated politicians who lobbied to have him brought to justice, killed journalists who tried to battle him in the court of public opinion, and today, this cocaine king is getting sucked. So strap in, and let's get into the violence, wealth, and power of a man who was a demon to some and an angel to others. This is Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) 
Happy Friday, everybody. I'm Dan Cummins, and this is a special 500 review bonus edition of The Suck. Thanks to Brandon Reyes, George Knuckles, and others for sending Pablo my way. Glad you did. I was super happy to suck him. Been sucking on Pablo, a.k.a. El Patron, a.k.a. Don Pablo, a.k.a. Princess Peach all week. Okay, that last one was not one of his nicknames. That's a shitty character in Mario Kart. Actually, who plays with Princess Peach? People who don't care about winning on the goddamn Mushroom Cup. That's who. And as always, uh, I appreciate those of you who have bookmarked uh, timesuckpodcast.com. Use that Amazon button to do your Amazon shopping. And those of you who threw some bucks to the suck, clicking that PayPal donation button. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks for all the first-generation T-shirt purchases. Uh, The second T-shirt, still under construction, but almost done. Just saw uh, a new image. I'm so excited. It's going to be a, a different look, very, very cool. Uh, the artist I commissioned it uh, to make it uh, is a dude with a long history of illustrations for that skate magazine, Thrasher, and it, oh, it's fu- he's fucking killing it. It's going to be so good, and uh, and yeah, hopefully I'll be doing the third one soon after. I know I've been getting a lot of requests for what that should be, and you can send those in to admin at timesuckpodcast.com. I feel like Nimrod and <laughs> Bojangles have been, have been showing up a lot in those uh, uh, People asking, people asking for some for some new new T-shirts. This one is going to involve a, a flat Earth and a space lizard, so it's going to be good. It's going to be good, and I, I'll have more pics to put up on social media. People wearing that first one, and uh, just so you know, Time Suck now has its own social media, uh, ran by Time Sucker uh, Jordan Kasuzik. It's at Time Suck Podcast on Twitter and Instagram uh, backslash Time Suck on Facebook, and and he is much more prompt on getting back than I am. Uh, I've been using all my free time to research these things. I, I probably spend more time than I should, uh, than I, <laughs> than I should, I just, it truly does fascinate me all this shit. And I just keep like, what? I'm just bouncing from one webpage to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. Uh, thanks for all the, uh, recent reviews on iTunes and elsewhere. And huge thanks for spreading the word. Uh, we just hit a million total downloads this week. I, I never thought that would happen this fast. I, I didn't even know if that would happen at all when I started this. And it's all because of you guys spreading that suck. And, uh, and it's thanks for continuing to listen as I continue to try and give you the, the good suck. I know you crave. And, and by the way, in the email stuff, I will get back uh, to all the emails and, and messages that have been sent to like admin at timesuckpodcast.com. Probably won't happen till, uh, till mid next week because I got to turn right around and jump on Monday's episode as soon as I'm done recording this. All right. So let's jump into some quick time sucker updates. Updates. Get your time sucker updates. More great email subject lines this week. Uh, sorry, I haven't got back again on those. Uh, but, uh, I do read them all. I do read them all. This week I got, uh, Hey Cock Nibbler, uh, from King Shit of Fuck Mountain. <laughs> that is, uh, that is a fantastic handle. I also got Stick That in Your Juice Box and Suck It from Han. Uh, You Are Sucking Awesome from Rich. Master Sucker, Suck On This from AJ Adams. Keep Sucking Me in the Bathroom at Work from Connor Roy. Uh, very specific with a location on that one. Uh, This Podcast Sucks from Doug Barnard. And... <laughs> And hail fuck nugget, arbiter to Nimrod, god of the universe, from Johnny Rockets. Well played, time suckers. Well played. Uh, Hezekiah Bennett wrote in, greetings, great grand sucker. I just wanted to chime in and say that movies splice in bits from other movies all the time, especially special effects and establishing shots. And this is referencing uh, the Marilyn Monroe episode when I couldn't believe that they used uh, a scene of her singing in a nightclub uh, that, that was shot specifically for one movie in a totally different movie. Uh, that didn't even star her <laughs> a couple years later. But I guess this goes on uh, a lot. I did not know that. He says, uh, but sp- special mention goes to Deadpool, uh, as that was coincidentally the example you used while sucking Marilyn. 
The movie straight up steals a shot of the X-Jet taking off from X-Men, The Last Stand, and covers it up with a new jet model. So your Logan hypothetical isn't as far off as you might think. Uh, love the podcast, love hear this, and can't wait for some Pablo this Friday. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, thank you, Hez. I, I, fuck, I did not, did not know that. That's crazy that they do. I guess, I guess for establishing shots, you know, it does make sense, but it still kind of feels like cheating to me, you know, that they just took it from, <laughs> from another movie. Huh, oh, well. Time Sucker Rich uh, added to the Marilyn episode as well. He said, listening to the Marilyn Monroe episode, and I fully agree with you about women who have children at random, leaving them to the system to take care of. My wife, Brandy, and I have been foster parents for seven years and have adopted two girls who have the same mother who does the same thing. Uh, we have inquired as well as to force sterilization for people who habitually have children with no intention on raising their children and instead leaving the responsibility to the rest of society. We were scolded quite harshly that no matter what women are entitled to their rights— uh, anyways, don't want to ramble, but this struck a nerve with me, and I had to say something. Love the podcast, and also glad you enjoyed the meme on Facebook about uh, Facebook about the flat Earth NASA wall. Slap a salmon, punch a bear, Rich. Uh, <laughs> uh, I love hearing that from somebody who's a foster parent. And by man, bless you, man. Jeez, foster parents, especially those who adopt some foster kids, fucking real life saints. What an amazing gift you're giving to some kid, you know, a stable home to grow up in. And yeah, and it's like any, I can't believe you were, you were lectured <laughs> about uh, taking rights away from people when, when you are literally the one fucking cleaning up the mess. Th- thank God that you are there, man. And by God, I mean, I don't fucking whatever. But <laughs> And finally, Han uh, wrote in regarding me uh, dismissing a, a, a sack of dog shit.net as a potential sponsor, you know, because last uh, I was making fun of a... Uh, uh, sponsors you wouldn't want, and I referenced a, a made-up place called sackadogshit.net saying no one wanted uh, some dog shit dropped off at their fucking door. But you know what? Uh, he he disagrees. He, sa- he says, don't say no one wants a dog shit drop-off service. Neighbors being too loud at night? Dog shit. Bad service at a smoothie bar? <laughs> dog shit. Anonymous dog shit drop-off is a business I would invest in. I would donate my three dog shit to the company. Revenge is a dish best served steaming. God damn it. You're right, Han. You're right. I shouldn't have judged that made-up company so quickly. If someone does want to purchase sackadogshit.net, start a business about fucking dropping dog shit off on people's porches, and you want to sponsor Time Suck, you know what? I'm not going to stop you. I, I'm, I'm into it now. And finally, uh, Wyatt Hawk wrote an incredibly thought-provoking email regarding some comments I made uh, uh, in the Maryland episode about why porn is judged so much more harshly than artistic nudity. And, I, man, I, re- I couldn't stop. This came in just a couple hours ago, and it really just got me thinking – He says, hello, sir. In the Marilyn Monroe episode, you stated your thought about not understanding the arbitrary difference between art nudity and pornographic nudity and how it is looked down upon. To me, that's a small example of a bigger idea. I feel like it comes from the intended purpose of art versus the purpose of pornography. With art, it's the whole connotation that civilized people are prudent and reserved and complex and Lowbrow people are unsophisticated, unintelligent, and live without shame of a life of indulgence. There is typically a subtlety to the art, and I agree, it is all subjective, which makes people feel like there is meaning beyond the instinctual sexual imagery from seeing a nude woman compared to pornography, which does not try to hide its intent. I don't know how I feel about this. I don't know if we are supposed to indulge in our instinctual feelings or if we are constantly supposed to fight them to live in our modern world. Isn't going against them the whole thing that separates us from non-conscious creatures? If a wolf feels hungry, it looks for food. If I feel hungry, I choose not to eat because I'm watching my weight. Not the exact same situation, but just an example. 
Is our human history of suppressing our desires, not just sexual, but desires in general, a symptom of society? Or is it the reason society exists where it is now? Through evolution, we are designed to be following our evolutionary impulses. Eat, sleep, love, hate, suck. <laughs> love that one. Uh, <laughs> tell us what to feel and do. Or are we where we are now because humans can feel a certain way but choose to do something different? To be honest, I really just don't know enough about psychology or brain functions or evolutionary mechanisms. All three of those might be the same thing to figure out the right answer. I enjoy challenging myself to exercise self-control, especially in times of extreme emotion, and I constantly battle with my own philosophical outlook and the associated hypocrisy. Sorry if I sound like a crazy person. Thanks, Wyatt. P.S. Heard about your show recently through the BDM page on Tom and Dan. Introduced my roommate to the show, and we both really enjoyed it. So thank you for, man, spreading the suck. And thanks to Mediocre Time with Tom and Dan for spreading the suck as well. And that is fucking what a great email. I, I had never thought of it that way. Where, yeah, I guess that is kind of what makes us civilized. You know, if, if we just always indulge in our base desires, you know, we'd just be fucking in the street and punch people in their faces. <laughs> I mean, clearly, if you've heard my stand-up, you know that I think about our base desires a lot. I think a lot about fucking primal violence. But I don't do it. I don't walk around just punching fucking strangers in the face as much as I would like to almost every day of my entire goddamn life. Uh, I guess that is. Suppressing desires is what's... Fuck, I never had it. Fucking that's great, man. That is, that's one of the reasons I have the fucking Time Sucker updates. God, I'll be thinking about that all week, and I'm sure more people will now as well. Thank you so much. Thanks to all of you. And let's get into some Pablo. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. Pablo Escobar. I may have heard of him as a kid. I don't, I don't remember. I feel like I had to have heard of him growing up, but I wasn't really introduced to him until I watched the first two seasons of Narcos on Netflix. Uh, if you haven't seen it, Really well done show. Very entertaining. And after researching Pablo this week, I feel like it's pretty factual. Uh, they may have taken a few liberties here and there, as shows do, but they get the big stuff right. So I wondered as I started my research, like, why Colombia? Out of all the countries in the world, why, why does so much coke, why has so much coke historically come from Colombia and not some other country? Well, first off, cocaine uh, comes from a plant that's from South America. So, you know, cocaine comes from uh, four varieties of a South American shrub called, this is a fucking big one, uh, erythrocylaceae. Erythrocylaceae. Fuck me. Whoever named that shrub should be brought back to life only to be killed again for forcing people to say that full sentence disguised as one word. Fucking Latin. Well, indigenous tribes such as the Incas were chewing on its leaves for millennia before European settlement. But it wasn't until 1855 that a German chemist named Albert Neiman isolated the active alkaloid, alkal uh, alkaloid, Benzoyl methylicanine, another fucking word that someone needs to be punched over. Uh, cocaine quickly became known as a powerful anesthetic throughout Europe. Famously, Sigmund Freud uh, promoted its use as a therapeutic tonic in 1884 with his paper Uber Coca, where he argued cocaine could cure depression and sexual impotence, which is hilarious to me because uh, one of the side effects of chronic cocaine use is impotence. And if you've ever uh, done coke, which I, I didn't do like a crazy amount, but I, I've done some. And uh, when you're done with it, you feel kind of depressed because you, you come down. So I feel like it didn't work for either one of those. Uh, Freud prescribed Coke left and right, mistakenly believed it didn't have a toxic dosage as well. Uh, whoops. Uh, he killed at least one patient by literally prescribing an overdose. You know, well, you live and you learn. Cocaine-based tonics and elixirs were sold in the U.S. in the unregulated drug world of the late 19th century, advertised to cure everything from headaches to toothaches to a nervous stomach to a lot of other things that cocaine doesn't cure. It became fairly popular in Europe during the 19th century. In 1863, a Parisian chemist, Angelo Mariani, 
Sounds Italian. I guess he could be Italian from Paris. Uh, combined coca and wine and started selling it. His uh, Vin Marion became extremely popular. Coke wine. Fucking Coke wine. That sounds amazing, actually. Uh, the wine you could just drink all night. Well, the active element of cocaine uh, really was one of the ingredients of Coca-Cola in the U.S., too. I'd heard that my whole life. Uh, so Coke, uh, you know, it was around in the U.S. long before Pablo Escobar. Uh, it was infused into the uh, soft drink Coca-Cola from 1885 to 1903 and wasn't even removed because of any law. And we're going to take a little deviation from the main narrative here, but this, this is very interesting to me. Check this silly shit out. Cocaine wasn't even regulated uh, in the United States until 1914. It was used in a variety of medicines, used rec- recreationally. Uh, the Coke was then taken out of Coca-Cola because of good old-fashioned Southern racism. The KKK. Who fucking knew? Uh, racism was actually what started uh, Coca-Cola uh, as well. The Ku Klux Klan and other racist groups lobbied for Atlanta and other southern towns to prohibit the sale of alcohol in the early 20th century because they felt it gave African Americans a little too much liquid courage. All right? little too. Or actually, I'm sorry. It was actually in the late uh, 19th century when they were doing this. You know, Made them, made them uh, a little less willing to accept their lesser role in society. Uh, apparently, they could push down uh, the rage developed from, from uh, pushing down chronic abuse at the hands of white devils. Uh, but after four or five drinks, uh, a lot of African Americans were like, fuck those motherfuckers. And that made Whitey very nervous. And then the racist won. Alcohol was no longer able to be sold, including some Coke wine that was being sold in the U.S. So in 1886, John Pemberton... The pharmacist founder of Coca-Cola was forced to reformulate his drink, which he was calling Pemberton's French Wine Coca. It's a long fucking name. Pemberton's, do you want to have some Pemberton's French Wine Coca? Or do you want to have some Coca-Cola? The fucking marketing people got a hold of that. Anyway, he replaced the alcohol with soda water and called the new drink Coca-Cola. But then uh, white supremacists soon became concerned with the black man's use of Coca-Cola. Felt felt like it got him too excited, Right. Southern newspapers reported reported that Negro cocaine fiends, that's a quote, that's not my words, uh, were raping white women and that the police were powerless to stop them. Uh, By 1903, uh, then-manager of Coca-Cola, Asa Griggs Chandler, had bowed to white fears and a wave of anti-narcotics legislation, uh, removing the cocaine and adding more sugar and caffeine. Dr. Edward Williams described to the Medical Standard in 1914 and again, again, this is the quote. It's now me. The Negro who has become a cocaine doper is a constant menace to this community. His whole nature is changed for the worse. I wish I was making this shit up. Wow. What am I going to learn next? That Santa used to be real until the white man found out he was giving black kids presents too? Had him fucking killed? <sighs> well, uh, anyway, the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act was passed in 1914, a United States federal law that regulated and taxed the production importation, and distribution of opiates and cocoa products. It began to be enforced in 1915, basically denying public use unless a doctor prescribed it. And then in 1920, uh, cocaine was added to the list of uh, narcotics to be outlawed completely by by passing uh, of the Dangerous Drug Act of 1920. And then it just kind of goes away. You know, it's, Now it's a pain in the ass to get. It's a federal offense. It's not trend anymore. Demand goes away. Kind of fades from popularity starting in the 1920s all the way throughout the 1960s. The market changes. Coke is replaced largely with amphetamines uh, for a while. You know, amphetamines first synthesized in 1887. The uh, stimulant amphetamine uh, was popular in the 1920s in the medical community where it was used for raising blood pressure. Yeah, I fucking – I bet it did. Uh, (laughs) Got some low blood pressure. Take some some meth. 
Let's get some, some, some crank in your system. Uh, enlarging the nasal passages and stimulating the central nervous system. Mm, yeah, I think it probably does all that pretty well. Uh, abuse of the drug began during the 1930s when it was marketed under the name Benzedrine and sold in an over-the-counter inhaler. How fucking sweet is that? Just go down to the, the fucking dime store, the general store, the mercantile, and get yourself an inhaler of fucking meth. Uh, during World War II, amphetamines were widely distributed uh, to soldiers to combat fatigue, mm-hmm, I'm sure, uh, and improve both mood and endurance. <laughs> yeah. And after the war, physicians began to prescribe amphetamines to fight depression. Okay, I don't know how that well that would work. But as legal usage of amphetamines increased, a black market emerged. Common users of illicit amphetamines included truck drivers on long commutes and athletes looking for a better performance. I remember hearing about that in, uh, in baseball, actually. That man, just uppers were being used by ball players all the fucking time in like the fifties and stuff. I, I get it, man. Uh, students referred to the drug as pep pills and uh, used them to aid in studying. I could I could use some pep pill pills uh, from time to time during some long stretches of research. Sounds sounds great, actually. When when you call it a pep pill, it uh, meth sounds so cute and harmless. Are, are you on fucking meth? You look like shit. <laughs> no, no, no. I just been taking a lot of pep pills. I just been feeling super peppy. Oh, peppy. Why are you missing so many teeth? I don't know. I just sometimes I, 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 I smoke the pep. I like it to smoke at the pep. Anyway. Also in the 1950s, the beatniks uh, make marijuana cool, and, and it moves into middle-class white America in the 1960s, increasing in cultural popularity. Uh, LSD was used here and there recreationally, starting in the 40s, increasing in, uh, in the psychedelic 60s. So there's, you know, there's other options for drugs. And then the 70s brought in the disco era. Oh, yeah. All right, staying alive and shit. Young people didn't want to sit around a campfire listening to Simon and Garfunkel, Traffic, Jefferson Airplane, and The Doors, and talking about social justice anymore. Okay, Vietnam was over. They wanted to head to a nightclub. They wanted to fucking party. They wanted to listen to some Donna Summers, and they wanted to stay up all goddamn night. And Coke was the perfect disco companion. And yuppies were hitting their stride about uh, about this time, too. You know, you're not going to kick enough ass on Wall Street all fucking doped up, sleepy. You need to be up. So the stage is set for Coke's grand reintroduction to the United States. What role did Pablo Escobar play in that reintroduction? Well, to understand Pablo, you got to first understand Colombia. But before we do that, I was wondering, is Coke really that bad for you? Is it really that bad? Uh, turns out it is. This is from WebMD. Uh, it says, cocaine is the most powerful stimulant of natural origin. It's also a natural pain blocker. Uh, in occasional cocaine users, uh, social or physical problems are rare. Yay! Coke's good. However, scientists insist that there is no safe amount of cocaine. Boo! Coke is bad. Uh, cocaine is a highly addictive drug. Uh, people who are addicted may eventually prefer taking cocaine uh, <laughs> to any other activity. Their lifestyles may alter completely as the addiction takes hold. Uh, scientists at the University of Cambridge in England identified, identified abnormal brain structure in the frontal lobe of the brain of cocaine users due to cocaine-using behavior. The team scanned the brains of 120 individuals, half of whom were addicted to cocaine. They found that cocaine users had widespread loss of gray matter. The longer the abuse, the greater the loss. Losing gray matter. That doesn't sound good at all to me. I, uh, I am no neurologist or someone with any uh, scientific uh, training whatsoever, but I feel like it's, it's best to keep as much of your gray matter as possible. Uh, I, I've, always been, I've, I've, always, I've always been pro-gray matter. I'm going to say that. Uh, other negative effects of cocaine use, uh, especially chronic, is constriction of blood vessels, elevated body temperature, accelerated heart rate, hypertension, high blood pressure, uh, headaches, ab abdominal pain, nausea, decreased appetite, regular uh, snorting can uh, contribute to loss of sense of smell, nosebleed, swallowing problems, persistent runny nose, hoarseness, 
uh, regular ingestion of cocaine can cause severe bowel gangrene caused by a reduction in blood flow. Holy fuck. Severe bowel gangrene sounds like the worst. Like, I don't care if you just won the lottery five minutes ago. If then five minutes later, someone's like, hey, man, your bowels are rotting away inside of you. Your whole day is shit. Your whole, your whole life is shit. Uh, irritability, anxiety, restlessness, heart failure, stroke, severe paranoia. The individual may lose his or her sense of reality and hear things that are not there. Now, I've never done uh, a crazy amount of coke. I, I, I don't do coke anymore. I've never done enough to experience hallucinations and paranoia, but I did witness that behavior firsthand, and it is so fucking weird. <laughs> so weird because it continues when the person's not high. Uh, I, I ran into this buddy of mine that I've known for years, about a year and a half ago, uh, when I was hosting this show and he was going to be a guest on it and <laughs> and he just shows up and literally like the first words out of his mouth. I haven't seen him at this point in probably like six months and he just says, I think people are trying to kill me. And, and I thought he was joking at first and he was not joking. And I was like, oh man, this is going to be a weird show. Well, he kind of he kind of held it together during the show and then after the show, we go grab coffee and he just talks to me for about an hour about how people are trying to kill him and about how he's hearing helicopters outside of his apartment and then he, he just keeps telling me all these mundane events, but then asking afterward, like, that's weird, right? I mean, that's weird, right? Just over and over he's saying that. But, like, the most innocuous things. He'd be like, and then, and then this guy that I'd seen at a pizza place, like, two weeks ago, suddenly he's hanging out in front of my apartment. I mean, that's, that's weird, right? That, that's weird. Like, why is he there? And then, you know, and then I, and then I, and then I heard this, this girl I dated, well, uh, she came by to pick up some stuff yesterday. That, that's weird. I mean, that's weird, right? Like, why, why would she come by? Like, he was so fucking cartoonishly paranoid that it just any normal thing that would happen around him was somehow part of some conspiracy in his head that he had tied to this drug dealer that he had bought the coke from who he thought wanted to kill him because the guy, like, you know, looked at him weird <laughs> a few times in his mind. I'm sure my buddy was the one looking fucking weird. Anyway. Uh, very entertaining <laughs> coke-induced paranoia. L- luckily, he's 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 chilled out, and now he's uh, no longer like that. Yeah, because then once I after about half an hour, I was like, dude, how much fucking coke are you doing? And then he told me he was doing it like several times a day, every day. I was like, well, yeah, you're out of your goddamn mind. None of this stuff. No one's no one's no one's putting helicopters around your apartments to try and get your fucking small amount of money that you may have. <laughs> you, you're not a priority for anybody. Ah, fucking crazy. Uh, but anyway, enough about my cokehead friend. Let's learn about the man who put the coke in so many cokeheads' heads, uh, more than any man in history before him, actually. And let's learn about the country he lived in that provided such a perfect environment for a kingpin to thrive in with the Time Suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck timeline. Fourteen ninety nine, the Spanish arrive in modern day Colombia, and they do as Spaniards do. They fuck shit up. That's how they do, you guys. That's just colonial Spaniards being colonial Spaniards, kicking off some death, exploitation, and enslavement for the glory of Spain. Uh, the Spaniards notice that uh, the locals, uh, the indigenous people, chew on some cocoa leaves. Uh, for energy, soon after exploring South America, the more cocoa leaves they chew, the more work they can do, and the less they need to eat. Sweet. Spaniards are big fans of the results, but largely refrain from indulging themselves in these cocoa leaves. It fucking weirds them out a little bit. Uh, Well, the new kingdom of Granada is formed in the 16th century. The Viceroy of Granada is founded in 1711. Uh, The United United Provinces of New Granada are formed in 1810. And by uh, 1819, 
Independence from Spain is won and Gran Colombia, uh, the precursor to modern-day Colombia, is born. Uh, 1848, Colombia uh, becomes not only an independent nation in the mid-19th century, but one of the strongest, most prominent nations in South America. Uh, a nation with old ties to the U.S., it was seen as a great example of democracy in South America, uh, had the first constitutional government in South America. The liberal and conservative parties, founded in 1848 and 1849, respectively, are two of the oldest surviving political parties in all of the Americas. Uh, slavery was abolished in, in the country short before, shortly before it was abolished in the U.S. in 1851. It's a populated country. Uh, it soon has the third most Spanish-speaking uh, people uh, in the world after Mexico and the U.S., Major cities, very modern, not all jungles and indigenous people, a uh, long, long ways from that, a uh, very first world and cosmopolitan, but also home to a lot of violence and conflicts over the years. Uh, so 1949 is when Pablo Emilio Escobar Gaviera uh, is born on December 1st, 1949, in the Colombian city of Rio Negro, uh, 15 miles outside of Medellin uh, during a very violent period of Colombia's history. Early in his childhood, his family moved to Envigado, uh, where he was raised. Uh, it's a suburb of Medellin. His father worked as a peasant farmer. Uh, his mother was a school teacher. And the violence he was born into was a civil war uh, referred to just literally as the violence, uh, la violencia. Uh, the la violencia was a 10-year period in Colombia's history where thousands of babies, thousands of babies, uh, were beaten to death with small wooden clubs known as los bitos de bebes herdos on a daily basis. No, no, of course not. Uh, it was a civil war in Colombia that lasted from 1948 to 1958 uh, between the Colombian Conservative Party, the Colombian Liberal Party, and various communist factions that began to appear in the jungles of Colombia in the mid-20th century. Uh, the war began with the April 9th, 1948 assassination of the popular politician Jorge Elisier uh, Gaitan, uh, a Liberal Party presidential candidate for the uh, election in November 1949. Now, there's speculation that the CIA may have been involved in his assassination. Uh, there's also speculation that uh, the Russia, the USSR, uh, may have been involved in his uh, assassination. And, and fair speculation uh, both ways, actually. Internationally at this time, uh, the Soviets were trying to spread communism internationally pretty aggressively, and the U.S. was trying to counter that and spread capitalism. And Colombia, like a lot of other countries around the world, uh, in the mid-20th century especially, they got caught in the middle. Uh, and the capitalists and communists were 100% trying to get the people who shared their ideology into positions of power. Like, absolutely, a lot of those CIA rumors, I believe, 100% are true about them fucking with this guy or messing with that guy, trying to get them into power. Of, of course, it just makes a, you know, a stable trading partner uh, for the U.S. to have, a stable ally. Well, Gaitan's murder provoked the uh, Bogatazo rioting that lasted for 10 hours, killed some 5,000 people. La, uh, La Violencia is estimated to have cost the lives of at least 200,000 people. And, and the violence took place between the paramilitary forces of the Colombian Liberal Party and the Colombian Conservative Party, which organized as armed self-defense groups and as guerrilla military units. Both also fought against the paramilitary forces of the PCC, the Colombian Communist Party, and not uh, one of these groups even thought for a moment about fucking with Bojangles, this canine paramilitary band of bloodthirsty bloodhounds and pit bulls. And because this story takes place in South America, uh, his gang also included the only Latin dog I can currently think of, fuck, a few chihuahuas. But seriously, uh, the conflict caused millions of people to abandon their homes and property, uh, media and news services uh, failed to cover events accurately for fear of revenge attacks. Uh, the lack of public order and civil authority prevented victims from laying charges against perpetrators. Shit was not fun. It was a little like Syria is now, just replaced religion with politics. Uh, 
So Pablo is born into a destabilized nation where various political factions use paramilitary forces to destabilize the government and try and take control. Uh, he's born into a place, you know, where politicians are assassinated on the regular. And, and I think this is important to understand as Pablo would mimic these events later in his life. So 1957, uh, end of the Civil War, uh, started winding down May 10th, 1957, when General uh, Gabriel Paris Gordillo, uh, along with two other generals of the army, uh, Luis Ordonios Castillo, uh, Rafael Navas Pardo, a uh, general from the National Police, uh, De Gracias Fonseca Espinosa, and Rear Admiral of the Colombian National Armada Ruben, uh, <laughs> or of the Colombian National Armada, uh, Ruben Pedrita Arango, uh, took hold of the government, squashed various rebellions, and held a general election for president in 1958, where everyone voted on whether or not uh, they should have names uh, that were easier to pronounce for gringos. Now, they restored democracy. It was worth noting that General Gordillo uh, had trained in the U.S. at Fort Leavenworth at one time, so I think it's safe to say that the U.S. got their dude in power uh, in an effort to restore democracy to a nation. You know, there was in civil war where one of the factions fighting for power was communist. They didn't want the commies to win. That was a big thing in a lot of Central and South American places in the, in the mid-19th century and late 19th – sorry, mid-20th century, late 20th century. So, so maybe the CIA was involved again. Again, I think it's likely historically um, the CIA involved uh, in a lot of shit. So, uh, and also remember on that, this is the time when, you know, when McCarthyism is running rampant in the U.S., like the U.S. is just super concerned about uh, communism, as we learned in actually in last week's Marilyn Monroe episode. So by the time democracy is reestablished, Pablo would have been about nine years old. So the nation he lived in was embroiled in a bloody civil war, uh, a lot of political ideologies being thrown around for the first decade of his life. Let's talk a little bit about those guys. 1964, FARC, uh, it's a little bit after that, 1964, uh, FARC. Uh, is a group that gets going because the fighting still hasn't actually stopped. The Civil War is over, but now there's little guerrilla factions out in the jungles of uh, uh, Columbia that come into the cities and fuck shit up from time to time. And one of these groups is FARC, uh, which is the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Columbia. Uh, the acronym makes sense when the words are in Spanish. And they form in 1964. Uh, they're the military wing of the Colombian Communist Party. And the operations of FARC were funded by kidnap and ransom, illegal mining, extortion, uh, taxation of various forms of economic activity uh, and the taxation uh, and also production and distribution of illegal drugs. Now, again, behavior Pablo would later adopt. Uh, those guys never develop in a vacuum. On August 25th, uh, 2016, the Colombian president, Juan Manuel Santos, announced that four years after four years of negotiation, uh, they had secured a peace deal with FARC. And on February 18th, 2017, so just recently, FARC rebels moved into transition zones and began the process of disarming. So we'll we'll see how long that peace actually lasts. And even if they are peaceful, FARC isn't uh, Colombia's only communist paramilitary group uh, that exists currently as well. Uh, also founded in 1964 was the ELN, the National Liberation Army. Uh, the ELN is smaller but pretty active, considered uh, by the U.S. Uh, to be an active terrorist group. Uh, they number under 10,000, and like FARC, uh, primarily a rural group of fighters and supporters fighting right-wing paramilitary groups, holding uh, people for ransom, etc., there's another communist group called the Popular Liberation Army, founded in 1967, that still operates in some form. Cuba, by the way, uh, it officially became a communist nation in 1959 under Che Guevara and Fidel Castro. A uh, lot of communist groups floating around Central and South America uh, again at this time. Lots of ties to Cuba and to their communist revolution. A lot of guerrilla warfare being fought uh, over extreme political ideals. Pablo himself would grow up with strong opinions of social justice because there was a lot of economic inequality uh, going on in Colombia You know, when he was growing up. And while he ultimately was a capitalist, hell-bent on making a lot of money, he also had communist sympathies, especially regarding the plight of those in extreme poverty. And he went out of his way to help them. 
Uh, Pablo uh, would have been in his late teens when all this shit was really getting going, and he was 21 when M19 formed in 1970, a group he would later work with directly uh, once he was a kingpin. Now, why were FARC and all, and all these groups really founded? Was it just people who wanted to spread communism? Um, not really. Uh, again, Colombia has historically been a country where vast swaths of land are owned by a very small, uh, rich elite, especially true in the 1800s and 1900s when Colombia, uh, the state, uh, the government, sold off large tracts of land to private owners uh, to pay for some international debts. Well, inspired by the Cuban Revolution of the 1950s, these communist groups, they demanded more rights and control over that land owned by the wealthy elite. They wanted to take it back and spread it around, you know, uh, for the common man. Uh, they wanted more rights given to Colombia's vast population of rural farmers who were kind of just looked down upon by people living in the city. And uh, and they continued to fight for the rights of the poor. And, and let's be honest, you know, probably for their own power and, and money as well. And so all these rural guerrilla fighting factions needed money in order to keep fighting. Sometimes they got funding from Cuba. Sometimes they got it from, the, from Russia, but not enough to survive on. So that's why they got into kidnapping and ransom. And they also got into drug smuggling, you know, uh, weed, especially in the, in the mid-20th century. Weed was easy to grow, uh, just as easy to grow as, as Colombia's main legal agricultural exports of coffee and bananas. And there was a lot of money in it if you were able to work outside the law, which these, you know, paramilitary groups were already doing. So, uh, there was a demand for weed in the U.S. and that counterculture revolution in the 1960s. And, uh, you know, in Colombia was, was at that point, you know, one of several countries that supplied it. Uh, weed also flowed in from Mexico, Central America, you know, other South American countries. So Pablo's growing up around all of this, a culture of smuggling, uh, a culture of, of fighting with your own government, uh, of viewing the government as a vehicle of oppression for the poor. He was poor. And he's also smart. He's a smart kid. At 13 years old, he was elected president of his school's council for student wellness, which he demanded, uh, which demanded transportation and food for the poor. Escobar uh, learned anti-imperialist and anti-oligarchic phrases that he would repeat for the rest of his life at this time. Uh, early in life, Escobar also understood the role that the U.S. Uh, had in Colombia because there was rumors, you know, going around that the CIA had murdered Jorge uh, Alicia Gaitan, the leftist presidential candidate who sought social justice. Gaitan's death was an event that ignited the confrontations, if you remember, uh, of the La, Valle La Violencia. And so Escobar, you know, he's hearing this as a kid. He's not a big fan of the U.S. government intervening in his government. Uh, he loved Cuba. He loved Cuba. He'd later want to make it his own personal playground, but he really loved it. He dreamed of being president uh, early on. Something that he would actually, uh, you know, try and accomplish later on. So, and, and, and Escobar became aware of all these societal injustices. He understood that poverty was an invitation for misfortune. Awful things happened mainly to the poor. He understood Colombia was ruled by this rich oligarchy who owned the majority of the country's land and wealth, uh, while more than half the population lived in horrible poverty. And so Escobar, you know, he despised Colombian society, elites. Uh, he hated poverty intensely. He wanted to, uh, to prove a poor kid from a poor neighborhood could make even more money than the current elites had. Now he'd tell his mom how he's, you know, don't even worry about not being able to pay for things. I'm going to get us so much money. He was, he was that kid. You know, he's going he's gonna to make everything right. He wanted to prove he was better than those people who were, smarter than they were. He, uh, he even told people he was so committed uh, to making a lot of money and really doing something with his life. He told people he would kill himself uh, if he didn't have a million pesos by the age of 30. Well, in school, uh, young Pablo and his active mind grew restless. Uh, he distrusted authority figures. He joined neighborhood gangs early on. And he made a little money hustling. Uh, he realized school was a waste of time for him, that he could make more money hustling, and he uh, he dropped out. He stopped attending classes for about two years, uh, a period mainly spent on the streets. Uh, the ruthless urban jungle of Medellin offered the real education that Pablo craved. Uh, they provided all the knowledge, all the tricks you know, that, that he was looking for. 
all the things he thought would be essential to him succeeding and getting to where he wanted to go. And that actually was when Pablo uh, decided to become South America's most famous magician. He probably didn't know that. He studied magic day and night. He read books on Houdini. Uh, He became pen pals with a young David Copperfield. Started wearing only ruffled silk blouses, top hats, uh, you know, fancy steel-toed shoes. And then once he conquered magic, he moved into tap dancing. He already had the shoes. He just added the metal underneath, and he moved into uh, rhythm gymnastics, conquered that, uh, leaped from there to accordion playing, um, went from there to uh, uh, the polka circuit, and and really just got himself into anything and everything that could get him ridiculed. Uh, wait, what the fuck am I even talking about? Most of that was just made up. Okay, by, by, by the age of 16, 1962, uh, after giving school one more shot to make his mom happy, Pablo totally commits to the life of a bandito. He is a bandit. And he partners up with another bandit, Bojangles. Three legs, one eye, 100% ass-kicking pit bull revolutionary who takes shit from no one. For the past six months, Bojangle has been hiding in the jungles of central Columbia, living on bananas, coffee beans, leading a small band of guerrilla, paramilitary, feral dogs, as I fucking told you earlier, including chihuahuas, preparing to take over all of South America and turn it into a canine paradise full of everything he loved. Peanut butter, poodles, dirty socks to chew on, hide, and or play tug-of-war with. But then... All of this ends when he snorts coke for the first time and cares nothing about anything if it was not fucking disco and titties. Wait, sorry. Whew, I got really into that one. I got really into that one. Got a little lost again. Okay, for, for, for real this time. For real this time, you guys. Pablo's 16, 1962. He idolizes Al Capone. Not fucking with you. Now I feel like you don't trust me. He desperately wants to become a big-time gangster. Uh, He sells fake lottery tickets, contraband cigarettes, runs street scams, steals cars, smuggles random goods, assaults people, etc. And again, not joking, he apparently wants to become a well-rounded thug. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. He and the other criminals he works with uh, early on kind of become the basis for what will soon become one of the biggest crime syndicates the world has ever known, the Medellin Cartel. So by the late 1960s, young Pablo would focus his energies on stolen cars. Uh, in the late, sorry, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying so hard to be fucking serious right now. I am, I, ha- I have been serious for a little while. I got, I got so into the Bojangles thing a few minutes ago that now I just want to keep talking about him. But I'm not going to. I'm, I'm going I'm to wait a little bit at least. Okay, in the late 1960s, uh, the most profitable business in in Medellin was to steal cars. Uh, I wouldn't have guessed that. I would have thought it would, uh, again, I just think of like drugs because of uh, narcos. But uh, apparently in the 60s, stolen cars, that was, that's where the money was. So uh, Escobar got into that. He stole cars, took them apart in order to sell their parts. Uh, he recruited a large gang, and it kind of taught him to organize. Uh, organize, you know, uh, become like a little crime syndicate. And he, and he did organize so well that he didn't even have to get his hands dirty after a little while. Uh, so he's teaching himself how to be a crime boss. All he does is uh, smoke pot <laughs> from a lot of things and just run shit. Uh, pot, by the way... Uh, one of his favorite pastimes uh, would be for the rest of his life. Coke was just economics for Pablo. Uh, pot was his love. So kind of funny to me that the dude was actually a pothead. Um, Escobar uh, dictated orders from the comfort of his own home, collected all the revenues, uh, and, and also started gaining a reputation for violence in the late you know, 60s, you know, uh, fucking slapping people around uh, who, gave, who gave him a problem. You know, he, he developed his, also this, this motto of plato o plomo. Uh, which translates to silver or lead. You either accept the silver, you accept a bribe, or you die by a lead bullet. 
Well, building his reputation, uh, he found he finds is a great investment because it makes his job easier. The further his reputation expands, the easier it is to make profits. Early on, uh, Escobar became curious about how popular he had become, how far his reputation had spread, and he found an easy way to test it. He, he gave his friends property car titles for brand new cars coming right out of the factory. He told his friends, just go to the factory and pick them up. When the factory workers noticed the titles were forged, Pablo's friends said these titles were made by Pablo. And apparently the fearful factory workers that just gave them the keys. How fucking awesome is that? Uh, we don't want to fuck with Pablo. Just take this brand new car fresh out of the factory. So, so they, they already had uh, you know, heard that he had a violent reputation. So soon, you know, people owning cars paid Escobar a fee to prevent their cars from being stolen. What a fucking sweet racket that is. So now he's making money off of stolen cars, and he's making even more money off of cars that just from owned by people who don't want them to be stolen. Ah, that's uh, he, he really is uh, studying his compound, man. Studying some fucking racketeering or whatever that mafia shit is when, when they either steal from you or they make you pay them to, uh, to ensure that you're not stolen from. Wow, okay. So uh, he and his gang also began uh, kidnapping wealthy people around Medellin at this time. Uh, uh, and I guess apparently his gang developed a reputation for they would receive the ransom money and then just fucking kill the victims anyway. Uh, and these murders were committed uh, just to make a point. Uh, Pablo's leftist and childhood revolutionary rhetoric uh, reemerged. And there's a great quote where he says, In this country, uh, where only the poor die murdered, the only thing that I have democratized is death. It's a pretty fucked up uh, way to justify just random murders, but, you know, also kind of a badass quote. Well, 1971, uh, the legend of kind of the Robin Hood uh, begins with Pablo. He, he starts building a, his, his reputation as this defender of the poor. Uh, the Medellin poor had, had heard about a just man named Pablo Escamar who was willing to redress injustices. And in the oligarchical uh, Colombian society, there were plenty of injustices. For example, Diego uh, Echavarria. Chavarria, there we go. Chavarria was a powerful industrialist in Colombia, widely respected in high social circles. Chavarria uh, also wanted to be regarded as a great philanthropist. Uh, he had inaugurated schools and hospitals in rural areas, but the reality was that Chavarria uh, didn't give a shit about the impoverished. Uh, the poor people of Medellin hated this dude. Uh, the workers in textile mills uh, worked long hours amidst um, inhumane conditions, received slave-like wages. He would lay off uh, hundreds of workers whenever, you know, made them a little bit more money with no severance pay, just fucking destroy their families. Chavarria uh, was also a violent man, uh, expanding his land holdings by forcefully, uh, forcefully evicting uh, various peasant communities. The peasants who rebelled were either imprisoned or murdered. Uh, the rest were forced to settle in Medellin slums. And then in 1971, uh, Pablo, he, he's been hearing enough about this shit. He decides to take some action. So one day, uh, it became news that Diego Echavarria had been kidnapped. His captors were asking for 50,000 pesos to release him. His family quickly pays the money to the captors, uh, and then Echavarria's family, you know, they expect to see Diego alive. Well, six weeks later, Echavarria's body is found in a hole not far from the place where Pablo was born. He'd been tortured, beaten, and strangled. And the Medellin poor rejoiced. Everyone knew Pablo had done it, and the poor of Medellin worshipped Pablo. Whenever he went, they'd, they'd find him, they'd shake his hand. Uh, apparently, uh, sometimes they would bow down to him, almost like pray to him, like he's a living god, like a living saint. Uh, began calling him Dr. Escobar, or simply the doctor. And this is when he's only 22 years old. So he's developing you know, a reputation uh, quickly, and he clearly has some fucking powerful charisma. And that's one thing I noticed when I, I watched this uh, like Pablo Escobar um, devil or saint I believe I don't have the note in front of me at this exact moment. It just popped in my head. But I watched this documentary. It's on Netflix. Uh, I, I'm not going to say it's great. It's like it's a, it's a Colombian documentary. It's all subtitled. 
it's 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 not uh, very captivating, but but it has lots. It's just like interviews, but the, but the best interviews are with this guy named who called himself Popeye, and uh, he was Pablo's like main hitman for many years, and then he went to prison for a long time. I think he's actually out now. But anyway, he's talking about like when he met Pablo and just the charisma Pablo had and how he was able to do things he never thought he would be capable of doing. I'm, I'm assuming like murder because the guy this is a guy who uh, you know I think had a reputation for killing like three or four hundred people. But he said, like, you know, uh, even if he got nervous or he got scared, he would just think of Pablo and he'd be able to do it. Like, almost like, like, <laughs> almost like he's wearing like a, a WW, uh, you know, PD bracelet. You know, what would Pablo do? And, and he said that the guy just had like this crazy energy about him where you just wanted, you wanted him to like you. You wanted to, to make him happy. You, you, you trusted what he said when he told you we were all going to have a great time and make a lot of money. You believed him. You, you followed him. You'd follow him into hell kind of thing. He told a story too, uh, about Pablo that I just thought was awesome. And I want to just, before I move on in this narrative, I don't want to forget it where he said that, um, uh, when Pablo was on the run one time later in Pablo's life, uh, from the police. Now people are looking for him all over Medellin and then him, Pablo and Popeye are just like walking down the street and all of a sudden these police officers get near them and Pop guy gets really nervous and he goes to reach for his gun uh, back in his belt. You know, it's back in his, uh, above his ass there behind him. Pablo takes his hand and is like, you know, like, no, 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 don't worry about it. And just kind of like motions like, come on, come on over here. And they walk over to this parking lot attendant and just strike up a conversation, just real casual. And then I guess the, the police officers just kind of like, you know, look at them and then everything kind of seems normal and then just walk away. And, and Popeye couldn't believe it. Because I guess at this time, like, there was a huge manhunt on for him. And he couldn't believe that Pablo wasn't, like, losing his shit. And then Pablo, like, grabbed his hand and put it on his chest, on Pablo's chest, so that this uh, Popeye could feel his heartbeat. And he wanted to let to show him that his heartbeat was, like, totally fucking chill. That just shit did not get to him. Uh, he was just, uh, you know, he, he's a, a villain, for sure. He ended up killing a lot of innocent people. But, man, there really was something fucking different about this guy. Okay, so again, he does all this shit that I've already said before now uh, by 22 years old. And then now we're in the early 70s. Uh, Columbia's geographical location is what made it prominent in the North American marijuana trade. Uh, let's talk about that for a second. Smugglers from the rest of South America had to get through Colombia to get to North America, and they had to dance to do it. Uh, it's called the old Bogota jig. Uh, Colombian smugglers would shoot around your feet as you jigged your way through the jungle to get out of their fucking country. Uh, and even if you love to dance, you fucking hated the Bogota jig. Okay, the dance stuff is obviously bullshit, but the location part is real. And uh, all those paramilitary groups uh, relying on illegal income give rise to this drug industry. And Pablo, through his various criminal dealings, gets into some uh, marijuana smuggling, working for some other traffickers. Uh, He's also smuggling cigarettes, uh, whiskey, clothing, uh, housing uh, appliances, you know, uh, whatever kind of contraband he can make money off uh, that come down from Panama. By the time he's 25, because uh, yeah, things are going back and forth between from Panama down to South America, and then from South America through Colombia up through Panama, you know, into like Central America, Mexico, North America, uh, U.S. and all that, blah blah blah. And so he has all these trucks that are just you know taking goods back and forth. And in 1975, Pablo's Panamanian smuggling connections begin to ask his dudes about cocaine. They can't believe Pablo's not smuggling cocaine. Uh, they start telling his men that, that, that the Americans are suddenly fucking crazy about it and willing to pay a lot of money for coke. So suddenly Escobar realizes, you know, he's been making business in, in the wrong field. These big voluminous shipments of whiskey and cigarettes and fucking appliances. You know, that shit's expensive to carry. You can only fit so much of it in the truck. Uh, it's a pain to gather, load, unload. Well, the same amount of money uh, could be made by shipping like a few pounds of cocaine as could be made by shipping a giant truck of this other stuff. 
So then one of his main lieutenants, uh, Caracho, uh, the cockroach, uh, Cucaracho, the cockroach, tells Escobar about the existence of the Huaga Valley. Uh, the upper uh, Huaga Valley in the jungles of northern Peru was a major area of cocoa cultivation. Huaga peasant communities have been growing cocoa uh, leaves for decades. Uh, if not even longer, they were experts. Uh, they produced cocaine like Krispy Kreme fucking produces donuts. And that's what they told him, and he didn't make sense because Krispy Kreme wasn't around yet, especially in Colombia, but still the analogy holds up. Well, each night the Huaga peasants' uh, hands would turn green after collecting cocoa leaves all day. These people fucking were – they were the cocoa people. And uh, Pablo soon res- recognized that these Huaga fields were, were more profitable than a gold mine, than an actual gold mine. So soon Pablo he starts using his cargo trucks to bring cocaine from Peru. Uh, he, he gets through his, his trucks through the Peru-Ecuador border zone. Uh uh, and, and then in this border city of Nara Nariño, uh, the trucks are loaded with potato sacks for camouflage. The trucks pass an inspection point, reach the town of Belen, Colombia, and that's where he rents a house and fills it with laboratory equipment. And, and here's where he starts uh, taking this cocaine base he's getting from Peru and crystallizing it into the pure powder that would be sold in America. And then the drug was initially packed into luggage bags. Uh, they initially would use um, human mules, you know, people fucking swallowing little condoms and baggies full of coke, uh, <laughs> taking them uh, to the U.S. on commercial flights where they would shit them out and hopefully not have them burst inside of them and fucking die of a massive overdose. Also in 1975, 25-year-old Pablo has Fabio uh, Restrepo murdered, his main rival in the emerging cocaine business. And then Fabio's men are told they're working for Pablo now. And now Pablo is the main man at 25 years old when it comes to Coke and Medellin. And this is basically how he'd handle threats to his business the rest of his life. Somebody's in his way, they're going to fucking die. Uh, And then also in 1975, another huge event occurs that has nothing to do with Pablo initially, but would affect him greatly uh, as far as his fortune very, very soon. Uh, Criminal associate Carlos Lader, uh, a young Colombian-American who had been picked up in the U.S. for stealing cars, cars he was shipping back to Medellin to be sold to his family's dealership. Remember the the whole fucking smug, uh, black market for cars there? Well, this guy shares a jail cell with American George Young, uh, who'd been transporting weed in heavy amounts to the U.S. out of Mexico. Now, if you've ever seen the Johnny Depp movie Blow, uh, Johnny Depp plays George Young, uh, known as Boston George. And basically, in the early 70s, George, uh, Boston George, had grown a marijuana smuggling business that started with his stewardess girlfriend taking weed from L.A. to Boston uh, in her luggage uh, to flying weed straight from the farms that was grown on in Mexico to the U.S. in single-engine Cessnas. He kind of pioneered that that smuggling uh, method. So once Carlos heard about George's uh, smuggling infrastructure, a light bulb goes off, you know, and he knew he's like, oh, fuck. He knew we could fit way more coke in a plane than weed. And the coke, which wasn't well known in the States yet, but was seen as prestigious in the U.S. by those who were in the know, way more expensive in the U.S. than weed. Uh, Even though it didn't cost you more to produce coke in Colombia than it did to grow weed. You know, and for for this guy, Carlos, it's just math. You know, he's like, you know, uh, like, 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 I'll give you some math right here. Where a gram of high quality, pure Colombian coke in the early 80s sold for about 125 bucks. At that same time, Weed sold for $300 to $600 a pound. Well, now, there's roughly 453 grams in a pound. So one pound of weed, uh, up to 600 bucks. One pound of Coke, $56,000. Now, you're not going to sell it wholesale at that price, you know, at the gram price. But even if you sold it at 10% of its street value, that's still $5,600 a pound. And you know they sold it for way fucking more than that. And that's way, way, way more than $300 to 600 bucks. And a pound of Coke is way more compact than a pound of wheat. So you get the idea. Infinitely more money could be made selling a plain load of Coke than a plain load of wheat. 
All right, well, Boston George and Carlos get out of jail in 1976. They do a test run to see if the Coke really will sell, and fucking boy, does it ever. Uh, Carlos sends a telegram to Boston George at his parents' house in Massachusetts right when he gets out of prison telling him to find two women, send them to Antigua with Samsonite suitcases. They do that, they come back, and George uses some of his old weed connections to test the market, and the shit sells out almost overnight. They make hundreds of thousands of dollars almost instantaneously. And then, from their old car-stealing days, Carlos uh, knew Pablo Escobar. And he knew that Pablo was building a massive Coke manufacturing infrastructure. He also knew that what uh, Pablo lacked was the right contacts in the U.S. and a more efficient method of getting Coke into the U.S. Uh, Boston George could solve both of those problems, and they could all make a lot of money. So Carlos introduces Boston George to Pablo, and millions flow into everyone's pockets. Everyone's pockets except Bojangles, who between being a dog and having only three fucking legs, has one hell of a time wearing pants. All right, also in 1976, Pablo gets married to 15-year-old Maria Victoria Henao. Uh, Hena- fucking goddammit. These, all these names. <laughs> uh, H-E-N-A-O, however the fuck you want to say that. Anyway, powerful men and young brides, I feel like that was such a thing for most of the world's history. Uh, I guess a 15-year-old isn't going to ask as many questions as a 25-year-old about where all the money is coming from. Uh, to their credit, uh, they remained married until uh, his death, and they'd have two kids. So, you know, it's not like he just uh, messed around with her and then just tossed her aside. Well, in, in, in May of uh, 1976, Escobar and some of his men are arrested coming back from Ecuador with a shipment of cocaine paste. After unsuccessfully attempting to bribe the judges, uh, he succeeded in bribing the arresting officers, and the case was dropped. He would not be arrested again for 15 years. Silver or lead. It works. Uh, 1978, just for being the liaison between Pablo and George's, uh, uh, Boston George's American contacts, Carlos makes enough money to buy an island off the coast of the Bahamas called Norman's Cay in 1978. Just buys the whole fucking island. Constructs a 3,300-foot-long uh, runway for a new fleet of drug-smuggling aircraft. And now... Planes are taken off from Pablo's cocaine plants in Colombia, stopping at Norman's Cay to refuel, and then they head there uh, to private airstrips around Miami. Uh, in order to protect the island, uh, armed guards uh, and attack dogs, real attack dogs, dogs not led by Bojangles, uh, patrolled the beaches and runway. They even had radar. Uh, any pilot foolish enough to land there uh, by accident was quickly warned off by heavily armed guards. guards. And the island became kind of like a modern-day Tortuga, if you remember that from the Blackbeard episode, like a, a, a lawless land. Uh, lawless land for smugglers in this case, and uh, not pirates. Uh, Carlos Toro, a Medellin cartel member who'd later turned DEA informant, remembers, he says this. <laughs> this is fucking crazy. He goes, Norman's K was a playground. I have a vivid picture of being picked up in a Land Rover with the top down and naked women driving to come and welcome me from my airplane. And there we partied. It was Sodom and Gomorrah. Drugs, sex, no police. You made the rules, and it was fun. I bet it was fun. Can you fucking imagine being single on a Coke party island where you're all making millions? Oh, my God. I bet it was an insane amount of fun. It's like they were living in a never-ending porno that had a Hollywood blockbuster budget and no studio execs to tell them how to do uh, fucking anything. They were living in the best cheesy 80s beach movie of all time, and it wasn't even the 80s yet. And so now Pablo and his Medellin cartel are making insane money. And also now there are too many side roads to explore from here on out to stay in this timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. So, jump ahead a few years to 1980 and Pablo is crushing it. 
uh, between 1978 and 1981, a period that became known as the Cocaine Wars, the Medellins sent dozens of hired guns to the U.S. to eliminate the Cubans as well as other rival South American groups like Chicago in the 20s and Pablo's idol Al Capone. Gang wars become an almost daily occurrence and hundreds are killed. And just like Capone, uh, uh, Pablo emerges at the top of the pile. And then unlike Capone, he gets to enjoy it a while and doesn't have to fucking rot away in prison while his brain disintegrates from syphilis. So actually quite a bit better than Capone. Well, Pablo has built several airstrips on various properties in central Colombia and is flying commercial jets he's purchased in Norman's Cay loaded with literally tons of cocaine. His operation is moving 15 tons of cocaine a day into the U.S. alone. He's making $420 million a week. A week supplying 80% of the nation's nation's increasing demand for Coke. And apparently he made really, really good Coke, like really pure, barely cut down. Now, I never did Coke in the 80s, but you know who uh, did? I'm almost positive. Michael motherfucking McDonald. That's right, Triple M. The five-time Grammy winner had admitted numerous times to quitting drug and alcohol abuse in 1985. That means 1984, he's doing drugs. And if you're doing drugs in 1984, you're fucking doing blow. All right, and most likely you're doing Pablo's blow. So there's like a 99% chance Michael McDonald snorted Colombian cocaine in 1984. And two years before Pablo's death in 1991, there is a 100% chance that Michael McDonald sang in a Diet Coke commercial. Another Coke fucking reference. Because I found that little clip on YouTube. What's that cool going down? What's that chill rushing through me? What's that uh, takes your breath away? Dun, dun, dun. That's the taste of real refreshment. That's the real love diet cocoa. That's the taste of real refreshment just for the taste of it. Diet Coke. Fucking nailed it. <laughs> nailed it. You listen to that. And then you go on YouTube and you listen to that goddamn commercial and you tell me if you can fucking tell any difference. All right? You listen to him at the same time with my volume turned way low and his volume turned max. And you tell me if you can hear any. You listen to both at the same time with my volume turned off and his volume turned as high as you can get it. And you tell me if that doesn't sound like Michael fucking McDonald. When will the McDonalding end? Only your hate mail will let me know. But seriously, Pablo is crushing it. Uh, even when the island uh, Norman's K is shut down by authorities in 1982, Pablo doesn't slow down. Uh, he just gets more creative. He taps uh, uh, legitimate cargo shipments, uh, replaces insulation in refrigerators, insides of TV sets from Panama with cocaine. Fucking just sneaking it everywhere, man. Uh, they also mix the highly sol- uh, soluble drug into Guatemalan fruit pulp, Ecuadorian cocoa, Chilean wine, Peruvian dried fish, even soaked into blue jeans. And then it was removed by chemists upon arrival in the United States. So they fucking, where there's a will, there's a way, I guess. Well, actually, where there's a lot of fucking money, there's a way. So he begins uh, uh, moving cocaine uh, through po- poverty-stricken Haiti instead of the tourist enclaves of the Bahamas. You know, got a good police force there. Uh, profits were so big, pilots would make one-way trips off the Florida coast, dropping sacks of cocaine, and then ditching their planes into the sea, swimming to waiting escape ships. You know you're making a lot of fucking money when you can just ride off dumping perfectly good planes into the ocean. Well, in 1992, uh, Pablo also enters uh, Colombian politics. Uh, he had dreamed of being president as a kid, and now it seemed possible to him. In 1982, uh, Escobar was for a brief period elected to the House of Representatives of Colombia's Congress. His political leanings were to the left, but he also expressed admiration for British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, among uh, other conservatives. He was able to get elected 
because he was enormously popular with the nation's poor. Uh, He bought popularity by building football fields and sports facilities, supporting health and education programs, and even building a a whole neighborhood that still exists to this day, uh, Barrio uh, Pablo Escobar, and just gave it to the city's poor. Well, his political ambitions also sowed the seeds for his ultimate downfall. Uh, He was no longer just some member of the underworld now, right? uh, Now he's in the public eye. Now he's trying to be a a legitimate fucking uh, public, you know, personality. And he learns that you can't handle things in the political arena the same way you do in the drug world. In the drug world, if someone got in Pablo's way, they were fucking dead. Between ordered assassinations, personal killings, and terroristic attacks, Pablo would ultimately be responsible for over 4,000 deaths. Uh, When Colombia's uh, Minister of Justice, uh, Rodrigo Lara, went after him, leading to him being expelled from Congress for his criminal ties, even though Pablo hadn't been officially charged anything, Pablo has him killed in 1984. Uh, Lara was gunned down in his car on the night of April 30th, 1984, on 127th Street in Bogota by a dude on a motorcycle armed with a machine gun. Uh, Riding in the motorcycle sidecar that night was Bojangles. God damn it. That mangy mutt just keeps getting his filthy paws into everything. Bojangles used his one good front paw to knock on Rodrigo's window so he'd look over and provide an easy target for the assassin. Bad dog, Bojangles. You're a bad dog. Well, uh, uh, the, the, the government retaliates by signing an extradition treaty with the United States. This, this is uh, a big thing for Pablo in a fucking bad way. Uh, he might be able to bribe Colombian officials. He might be able to do the fucking uh, silver or lead with them. But the DEA, uh, no, they're not going to care about the silver. All right? They're just going to take him and his associates out of the country, uh, out of Colombia's hair, and just let them rot in a U.S. prison. Well, Pablo isn't happy about having his political ambitions thwarted, but he does console himself from this time by indulging an insane amount of wealth. Let's check out some crazy shit uh, Pablo did with his money in the 80s. This is fucking unbelievable, and I'm not making these ones up. Uh, In 1981, uh, he bought four hippos from the San Diego Zoo from a private zoo – uh, sorry, from the private the San Diego Zoo uh, for his private zoo on one of his estates in Puerto uh, Triunfo, uh, 93 miles east of Medellin. Uh, he also had antelope, elephants, exotic birds, giraffes, ostriches, ponies. <laughs> At this location, dubbed Hacienda Napoles. Uh, he also had a, a fucking bull ring. He had a go-kart track, sculpture garden, large collection of private cars. Uh, and then fun side note, I found some National Geographic articles about this. The hippos are still there. Like when they confiscated all his stuff, the the hippos that they kind of let the, like the zoo just became dilapidated, and then the fucking animals escaped, <laughs> and the hippos are still around. I guess there's about forty of them uh, there, and to, and to keep them from spreading, the government's actually worried about it. They've been trying to castrate some of the males because they feel that if uh, if they don't do that in a, in a few decades, there could be like hundreds of hippos fucking roaming around there, fucking up villages and shit. <laughs> uh, he bought a Lear jet specifically for flying around his cash to various banks and hideouts. Uh, that's insane, man. A jet for just your cash. Uh, at one point, uh, if Columbia agreed to lift its extradition treaty with the U.S., which was a huge thing he kept uh, focusing on because, you know, uh, he's not just worried about himself with that extradition treaty. A lot of his buddies, a lot of his cartel associates are getting caught, fucking bounced out into the U.S., and he, he can't help them there. Well, if, if they'll lift that, he'll pay off the nation's debt, which was $10 billion. So he's like, I'll pay the fucking $10 billion debt if you'll change the law. Uh, in the late 1980s, Colombian authorities seized some of Escobar's enormous fleet. Uh, 142 planes, 20 helicopters, 32 yachts, and 141 homes and offices. That was some of his assets. 141 homes. Some of his homes. That's more homes than exist in the entirety of my hometown of Riggins, Idaho. I'm not even joking. Pablo could have just bought my fucking hometown, and it would have been a very minor investment for him. Uh, he bought two submarines uh, to ship more cocaine with. He had fucking submarines! The dude had cartoonish Scrooge McDuck giant building full of gold coins money. Uh, 
Uh, he bought and funded a Medellin soccer team, uh, Atletico uh, Nacional, or Nacional uh, and turned it from a joke into a South American powerhouse. Escobar operated in the soccer world the same way he did in his personal business. Uh, when he found out an opponent bought off a referee, uh, he had that man hunted down and killed. Uh, Pablo loved football, by the way. Uh, he built 70 soccer fields, roughly 70 soccer fields in poor neighborhoods around uh, Medellin. And, and I think uh, in some surrounding neighborhoods. Uh, Escobar uh, made the Forbes a billionaire's list of the world's richest people. Seven years in a row, started in 1987, peaked at number seven in 1989. Uh, next to the estimated wealth of each person on this list, uh, they reference what, like, what industry they're in. Uh, it's hilarious. I found the original article, and it says, you know, like, it'll be like real estate, banking, petroleum, electronics. Next to Pablo's, it just says cocaine. Uh, estimates of his wealth, the height of his power, run as high as $30 billion. And it could have been a lot more. It's not like he had the shit in a stock market like Bill Gates or Warren Buffett. Uh, I almost called him Warren Buffet. Fuck, I so close. I don't know why I'm calling myself out. So close to calling him. I would have got some serious time sucker fucking emails if I'm like, uh, Bill Gates or Warren Buffet? Uh, Mr. Buffet, how did you get your money? Uh, lots of food, lots of food, uh, casino food. Uh, it can never be verified how much money uh, Pablo had though, you know, because it was liquid. Uh, you know, he had it in cash, fucking stored in weird warehouses and hidden farms and fucking cartel members' walls and shit. I think it's possible, probably even, that for a while he had more cash than any dude in the world. I mean, I mean, he once burned $2 million to keep his daughter warm when they were on the run. She was sick. Uh, his immense wealth became problematic uh, when he couldn't launder his cash quickly enough, you know, and that's when he started putting it in, like, the, the fields, warehouses, and all that stuff. Um, Roberto Escobar, uh, the chief accountant and the Kingpin's brother in his book, The Accountant's Story, Inside the Violent World of the Medellin Cartel, wrote that Pablo was earning so much each year we could write off 10% of the money because the, ra- <laughs> because the rats would eat it in storage or be damaged by water or lost. Just the fucking rats just always seems ridiculous to me. Um, that's what he wrote. He, so that, that, and, that, and he wrote that would roughly be $2.1 billion annually uh, based on how much the cartel was making overall. I mean, he had he had so fucking much money. He's like, yeah, whatever. Uh, we're gonna lose two billion dollars this year to mold and rats. Ah, fuck it, whatever. I'm buying another zoo. Uh, not only was Pablo insanely wealthy, uh, he was also insanely violent. In addition to having the Minister of Justice killed for signing an extradition treaty with the U.S., who wanted to shut down the Colombia to America Coke pipeline, Pablo also had the American embassy car bombed in 1984. Now they missed the embassy. Uh, the, the bomb went off near it, but they did kill an innocent Colombian woman, wounded several others. Then there was the M-19 Palace of Justice siege in 1995 uh, when he paid the communist paramilitary group M-19, which we talked about earlier, to raid the Palace of Justice, Colombia's Supreme Court, and destroy evidence the country had stored there regarding drug trafficking. It's like during this trial, when there the extradition stuff, he, was, he wanted to fucking just wipe out all records of Medellin uh, cartel criminal activity to, to make some stuff easy for him, easier for him politically. Uh, he also hoped that holding the judges just hostage would force Colombia's hand in removing that extradition agreement. Well, it didn't. Uh, but this siege did lead to the death of a bunch of people. 48 Colombian soldiers, 35 M-19 members, and 11 Supreme Court justices ended up getting killed. Can you fucking imagine if some U.S. drug lord killed even one Supreme Court judge, especially by walking into the Supreme Court and fucking executing him? Uh, American media and public would go bananas. Uh, there was the assassination of, attorney, of an attorney general. The cartel killed uh, Attorney General Carlos Moro Hoyos Jimenez. Why do these people have to have four fucking names? Seriously. God damn it. I wish just in this episode, I wish one person was named like fucking Jim John. <laughs> the na- he was the nation's leading prosecutor against Pablo. Killed him in a kidnapping attempt near Medellin in January 1988. 
uh, assassination of presidential candidate Galan in 1989, when Colombian journalist and former minister of national education and current senator Luis Carlos Galan uh, announced that he would run for president and that one of his key objectives was extraditing drug lords. Big mistake to say that publicly. Uh, Pablo had him gunned down at a political rally. You can actually fucking watch it on YouTube. You see this guy getting fucking murdered. It's crazy. Um, Blows up Avianca Flight 203 on November 27th, 1989. He killed 107 passengers of Avianca Flight 203 when he was trying to kill uh, a presidential candidate in the 1999, 1990 election, Cesar uh, Guevara Trujillo. Uh, again, imagine if this happened today in any Western nation. People would lose their shit. If one criminal was responsible for killing uh, a bunch of politicians, a good chunk of the Supreme Court, and then blows a passenger jet uh, out of the air in another political assassination attempt. Yeah, it's, it's like like if Osama bin Laden had not only brought down the Twin Towers, but also orchestrated multiple assassinations of high-ranking politicians. We probably just fucking nuked Afghanistan. Uh, there was a DAS bombing uh, a month after the Avianca flight. Uh, at 7.30 a.m., December 6, 1989, uh, Pablo ordered truck bomb targeting the Administrative Department of Security, DAS, uh, is what it translates in Spanish, uh, the, their headquarters. Uh, it kills 52 people, uh, injures about 1,000. The bomb blast, uh, which was roughly... 500 kilograms of dynamite leveled several city blocks, destroyed more than 300 commercial properties, all in an attempt to assassinate this DAS director, uh, Miguel Maza Marquez, who actually escaped unharmed. Uh, he had child assassins. Uh, during the mid to late 80s, he, uh, Pablo built a violent army of assassins from the ghettos of Medellin who would kill whomever, whomever, ah, whomever he told them to. He had a legion of hired guns, Sicarios, as young as 14, paid him $100,000 to $3,000 uh, to kill Colombian cops. Huge amount of money in a city where kids from the slums had fucking almost no other options. Uh, DEA agent Pena uh, remembers Sicarios telling him, our life expectancy is 22. If we have some money to give our mama, some money for sneakers and drinking, what else do we want? I mean, these are the fucking population he's dealing with. Also, Medellin cartel member uh, Jose Gonzalo uh, Rodriguez Gacha built the cartel's military arm, hiring British and Israeli mercenaries to train his men, uniting with right-wing death squads and paramilitary, paramilitary groups. Fuck. By his death, uh, he had an army. By his death, Pablo Sicarios would kill over a thousand Colombian police officers. Over a thousand. One drug cartel is bringing one of the biggest nations in the Americas to its fucking knees. Well, not surprisingly, all this violence uh, escalating throughout the 80s turns Pablo's uh, Medellin into the world's most dangerous city by far, uh, peaking in the early 90s shortly before Pablo's capture. Here's some fucking crazy numbers for you. Uh, Medellin witnessed 6,000 349 murders in 1991. That's a murder rate of 380 per 100,000 people. Uh, let's put that in some context. By comparison, the city with the highest murder rate right now is Caracas, Venezuela, with 119 murders per 100,000. He had fucking over three times that back in Medellin. By comparison, the most dangerous neighborhood in the U.S. is East St. Louis with 59 murders per 100,000. Chicago, Chirac, it's a lot of media coverage. Uh, just under 28 murders per 100,000. Medellin had 7,000 uh, and uh, – yeah, yeah, just just under 7,000 fucking murders in 1991 with a population of, of roughly 2 million. Sorry, there was a, a different number there. Threw me for a second. Uh, Chicago had 762 murders in 2016 with a population of 2.7 million. Uh, murder was – it was off the fucking charts. They were averaging almost 20 murders a day. That's insane. Uh, today, uh, Medellin's uh, murder rate somewhere around 20 murders per 100,000. So it no, no longer shows up on the charts from 
from all those fucking murders before us. Oh, my God. So much murder. Well, all this murder and violence backfires on Pablo, and there is now an increasing uh, public pressure to end it. People are sick of this fucking, uh, all the murders, and who can blame them? Uh, a 200-man task force called Search Block is formed in 1989 by Colombia President Cesar uh, Gaviera to capture Pablo, uh, headed by Colonel Hugo Martinez of La Policia Nacional de Colombia. The United States has the DEA assist them. The cartel fight back. 30 of, uh, of Colonel Martinez's men are killed in the first 15 days. But uh, they do make some headway with Pablo. He's forced into hiding. Uh, has to buy his own taxi firm to whisk him around from fucking one hideout to the next. Also to get a feel for who else is traveling around the city looking for him. Uh, his son would later say he and his family were moved every two days between 15 hideaways they had all over the city. Anyone visiting Pablo was blindfolded so they wouldn't know where they had met. And while Search Block is unable to capture Pablo, uh, Pablo's getting fucking sick of not being able to enjoy his wealth. He's sick of having to move around all the time. And uh, the Colombian government, they're sick of chasing him. You know, he's, he's, his men are killing more Search Block members almost every day. More explosions are rocking the city. And so then Pablo tries bribing Search Block's commander, the colonel, uh, with $6 million, but Martinez won't budge. So then Pablo has his lawyers uh, approach, you know, the Colombian government with the deal. He'll end the violence. He'll turn himself in and serve a few years in prison if Colombia will end its extradition treaty and not send him to the U.S. and not send his men to the U.S. Well, Colombia passes new legislation in 1991 eliminating extradition to the U.S. It was suspected Pablo bribed several officials to get it passed, and then on June 19, 1991, he and several of his lieutenants turned themselves in. Kind of. Check this shit out. Escobar would go to jail. Uh, in 1991 for five years under the conditions of his surrender. Uh, it would just happen to be a jail uh, that he was able to build his specifications on land he owned. Uh, this prison, uh, which came to be known as La Catedral, uh, the cathedral was built on Medellin, uh, in Medellin on three hect- uh, hectares, hectares uh, of land that had uh, he bought in preparation of this possible agreement with the state. And as part of the arrangement, he would also have the right to choose his guards. <laughs> Uh, the location also allowed him a direct sight line to his family's primary home on the hill below. And uh, he even had a telescope mounted so he could see his wife and kids while he talked to them on the phone. They could also visit him several times a week, almost as much as they wanted to, uh, just short of living there with him. Uh, on June 19, 1991, Escobar arrives at this prison in a helicopter uh, to serve his time. Uh, the name Cathedral, by the way, was a nod towards its grandeur, not any religious uh, affiliation. Unofficially, it was called Club Medellin or Hotel Escobar. Uh, resort would have been an apt description as well. Um, Escobar's designs featured a bathroom with a jacuzzi, uh, a bed, a circular rotating bed. <laughs> the compound included a soccer field, a discotheque, where I'm sure they're doing lots of his fucking blow, uh, a dollhouse for his daughter, had its own bar, uh, there was a waterfall, cellular phones, radio transmitters, fax machine to allow him to continue with his cartel business. Uh, while Escobar was living in the cathedral, his friends would drop by. Professional soccer players would be helicoptered in to come play with Pablo on his personal soccer field. Uh, prostitutes would be brought in by the fucking van load for crazy orgy-like parties. Uh, he didn't have to hide from search block anymore. No more worries about assassinations. It's actually kind of better for him. Uh, he and his fellow inmates uh, even had their own guns. People who witnessed them just fucking walking around <laughs> the prison where the inmates are carrying machine guns. Just openly carried around the guards uh, as part of the deal. And you know and you know those guards that he picked are on their fucking payroll, so really they're just on his team as well. Uh, as part of the deal, the Colombian National Police, who Pablo was worried about, uh, he thought they were going to try and kill him, they weren't permitted within a 12-mile radius. All these guards were military. Uh, he basically had his own luxurious clubhouse the government could you know, call a prison. And, and why did they allow this? Why did Colombia allow this? Because Escobar's bombings and bribes had pushed the country to the fucking brink of collapse. In the, in the 1980s. They just wanted it to be over. 
His imprisonment would be a landmark victory for them, even if his imprisonment was largely symbolic. The arrangement also brought an end to the state's costs uh, and time invested in the endless pursuit of this dude. And Pablo uh, could have easily wrote out the five-year sentence if he, if he didn't have such a fucking gigantic drug lord ego. A year in, in 1992, Escobar summoned four of his top lieutenants to the cathedral, uh, whom he had suspected of smuggling money away from him, of stealing some money. And then he has them tortured and killed right there in the fucking prison. Uh, that causes the Colombian government, uh, once public, you know, hears about this and they, and they realize this place is a fucking joke, uh, to insist that Escobar be transferred to a regular prison for the remainder of his sentence. And, uh, for, uh, for being a criminal mastermind, the dude's a fucking idiot, man. He, he really fucked up a good thing here. Uh, you know, he still had literally more money than he knew what to do with. He's worth over 10 billion, at least at this point. Uh, and you know, he's still losing millions to rats eating his cash and shitty fucking jungle warehouses. Oh, but he, but he can't take just the possibility that a couple of lieutenants might be taking a little money, skimming a little bit off the top while he's in there. Fucking let it go, dude. You're making billions, man. It's ego. Fucking ego. Ruins so many golden opportunities for people. Uh, so now the government sends in an army to take Pablo to a proper prison, right? They're like, nope, they're fucking storming in there. They're going to storm his prison. With that, that in and of itself is so weird that they have to storm what's technically should be their own prison. Uh, but they don't catch him. After 13 months at his scenic palace in the mountains, uh, Escobar uh, fled in June of 1922. And Juan Pablo, Escobar's son, uh, many years later revealed how his father escaped. Uh, he anticipated that one day he might need to flee. And so when, when he has the place built, he orders that one of the um, structure's perimeter walls, like a section of it, is mortared with a weak mix of concrete. So that all it would take was a couple kicks to fucking just break it down. How genius is that? The old fake prison wall trick. Who fucking thinks of that? A mastermind. That's who. Well, when the army comes to the hill to get him, he just has his fucking boys kick down the back prison wall and they sneak into the jungle. You know, they got all their fucking guns and off they go. Uh, you know, it took the soldiers who stormed Escobar's prison uh, around 12 hours to even fucking fully realize that he'd escaped. So once he uh, leaves the cathedral, Escobar is never taken into custody again. Well... Uh, if he thought that the Colombian government was after him before, now they really want to get a hold of this motherfucker. Uh, the search block unit is brought back, uh, still still run by uh, Martinez, uh, and boosted from 200 to 600 men. Uh, the U.S. Delta Force uh, sends members to join the team. Navy SEALs join the team. Uh, the country places a bounty on Escobar of $6 million. Uh, also, a rival cartel, the Cali Cartel, which would take over after his death, they want to finish him off. Uh, they form a, vig a, a vigilante group called Los Pepes, a name derived from the Spanish phrase uh, perseguidos por Pablo Escobar, persecuted by Pablo Escobar. Uh, while Los Pepes uh, never killed Pablo, they did eviscerate his fucking cartel. Uh, Los Pepes carried out a bloody campaign uh, in which more than 300 of Escobar's associates, his lawyer, various relatives are murdered, uh, and a large amount of the Medellin cartel's property is taken by the Cali cartel uh, during all, all of that. Well, after fleeing his cushy prison, Pablo desperately tries to get his family out of the country because he's afraid Los Pepes is going to fucking kill him, uh, which, you know, a good possible that is they're trying to do that. Uh, Pablo knows that his wife, mother, and kids are in serious danger, and so he's hiding in various safe houses around Medellin, but he's also trying to get them out of the country. Uh, but no country will take him. Uh, at one point, they, his family does make it to Germany, but then the, uh, Germany sends him back to Colombia. And then uh, 16 months after escaping from his clubhouse on December 2, 1993, the search block finally finds him. They've been tracing his calls for months, right? Because he can't just stay off the phone. He's got to fucking try and get his family out of the country. 
Uh, but he also knew that if he could hang up, you know, uh, before three minutes, they wouldn't be able to pinpoint his exact location, but he's getting sick of hiding. He's having a harder and harder time accessing his money. He can't effectively run his cartel anymore. His cartel is being fucking decimated. He's separate from his family. You know, it's the day after his 44th birthday. He's missing his kids and he talks to his son for too long. You know, he knew, he knew he's supposed to keep under three minutes, but he just didn't give a shit anymore. That's fucking Pablo. He's still got that ego. Uh, still thinks he can get around, you know, a- anybody's rules. And then the son of Search Block's commander traces his call to an exact location. A rooftop chase ensues, and then depending on whether you believe the police or his son, he's either shot in the ear uh, by one of these police officers from Search Block, or he shoots himself in the ear. Something he, uh, he allegedly told people he'd rather do uh, than be captured and sent to an American prison. He'd always said he'd rather lie in a Colombian grave than rot in an American prison. Well, in the minutes after his death, Colombian commandos pose like big game hunters over Escobar's corpse. I actually found that picture. It's pretty, even though he did a lot of bad shit, so it's a weird fucking picture. Like, they're so happy. It really is like a big game photo. It's like like they're over like a fucking giant elk or something. Or like, like uh, it's, it's fucking kind of creepy. Um, Viva Colombia! We've just killed Pablo Escobar, a Colombian policeman shouted over his radio as he broke the news. Uh, but then... Despite all the violence and mayhem uh, he had caused for the last two decades, 25,000 people, actually over 25,000 people, attended his funeral. Many people still loved him because Escobar had rallied support among Colombia's poorest citizens by stepping in when the government wouldn't. You know, he built that apartment complex in that neighborhood of Medellin that still bears his name, where, you know, even today, I found on some documentary, people still praise him for what he did, you know, for their families and the community. You know, one person said, like, there were slums, what we call houses of cardboard and wood, remembers a, a community leader who lived in the barrio Pablo Escobar. And Escobar, you know, he said, paid to build homes, hundreds of homes in the impoverished area where there had previously just been like a garbage dump. He said while he was alive, everyone respected him. Everyone managed themselves well in uh, his neighborhood. Uh, the man left a twisted legacy, you know, for all the murders he committed, you know, or had committed on his behalf. He also, by all accounts, also loved his wife, uh, his mom and kids. You know, uh, he truly uh, did help a lot of those in need. I mean, he did cheat a lot on his wife, but he also, you know, he loved her too. Uh, uh, even his drug empire, not that I'm saying that's right, by the way. No one getting fucking worked up. You have to send me fucking crazy letters. Uh, even his drug empire, you know, provided jobs to like tens of thousands of people uh, overall who otherwise wouldn't have made uh, the money he was able to pay him. He spoiled the hell out of his son. Uh, Juan Pablo grew up with everything a boy could fucking want. Family lived in uh, Hacienda Napoles, a vast and tony ranch, you know. They had uh, 27 artificial lakes, 27 swim pools, uh, fucking zoo like I talked about, an airstrip, gas station, 1,700 employees living there one time. Uh, by the time his son was 11, he owned 30 high-speed motorbikes, 30 water scooters, ATVs, go-karts, dune buggies. When he was 13, he had his own bachelor pad with two large bedrooms, zebra skin, fucking rug, futuristic bar. His son also remembers the tender side of his father, sang to him every night at bedtime, promised him in the world, told me if I wanted to be a doctor, he would give me the best hospital, Juan Pablo said. He never wanted me to follow in his footsteps. But still, even if his son didn't understand uh, the choices his father made, uh, or I'm sorry, but still, you know, his son didn't understand uh, the choices his father was making, you know. I mean, he did think, you know, in, in reference in an interview, he's like, what's the point in having all that fucking wealth if you're constantly living in fear of being captured and having it all taken away? And that is strange. You know, why make all that money? If you don't get to enjoy it, he could have walked away many times, but according to the interviews of hitmen I watched, like Popeye, he, he, he enjoyed being an outlaw. It was his, his identity. You know, for him, a straight life wasn't worth living. And now, before I get into my final, final thoughts on Pablo, uh, some of you uh, listeners referenced a possible CIA connection with him, and I looked into it, and here's what I found. 
Basically, their speculation is the CIA turned a blind eye towards cocaine shipments coming out of countries like Nicaragua and Colombia as long as the people and or governments making money use that money to fight communism in those areas, like I talked about earlier. Uh, they allowed the sale of cocaine to fund communism resistance efforts in South and Central America. Uh, the newspaper San Jose Mercury actually ran an expose on this possibility in the mid-90s saying on August 18th, 1996, uh, the San Jose Mercury News published the first installment of a three-part series of articles concerning crack cocaine, the Central Intelligence Agency, and the Nicaraguan Contra Army. The introduction to the first installment of the series reads, For the better part of a decade, a San Francisco Bay Area drug ring sold tons of cocaine to the Crips and Blood street gangs of Los Angeles and funneled millions in drug profits to a Latin American guerrilla army run by the U.S. CIA, a Mercury News investigation has found. This drug network opened the first pipeline between Colombia's cocaine cartels and the black neighborhoods of Los Angeles, a city now known as the crack capital of the world. The cocaine that flooded in helped spark a crack explosion in urban America and provided the cash and connections needed for L.A.'s gangs to buy automatic weapons. So there's some other weird gang stuff there too. And I know people have actually written and asking about the CIA drug connection. So there's a little tip of the iceberg for it. And, uh, his son, Juan Pablo, uh, also confirmed that he felt like his dad was working with the CIA. He said he, uh, was doing it again to help fight communism in Central America. He said his, uh, his father also funded many illegal activities in countries deemed, uh, hostile to the United States under the supervision of the CIA. He said the drug business is very different than what we dreamed. What the CIA was doing was buying the controls to get the drug into their country and getting a wonderful deal. Escobar did not make the money alone, but with U.S. agencies that allowed him to access his money. He had direct relations with the CIA. The person who sold the most drug to the CIA was Pablo Escobar, and that's his son uh, saying that in a, in, a, in, a, in a documentary called Sins of My Father. And his son also discussed how the U.S. government agencies, including the CIA, were his father's partners in the drug trade, I guess, which I just kind of already said. Um, according to him, this kind of allowed his father to defy the law with a little more aggression, uh, giving him kind of similar powers to those in the Colombian government. And uh, yeah, and then when the, you know, he also said that when the CIA felt his dad was no longer use, useful and just kind of too violent, uh, that's when they kind of gave the go ahead, like, let's fucking get rid of this guy. Now, do I believe all this? Uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe. Sure. Maybe the CIA figured the drugs were going to make it to the U.S. anyway, so why not make a little money uh, and use it to fund some uh, kind of lesser of several evils, kind of you know paramilitary group who would work with the U.S. if they you know claimed whatever throne they were chasing. I, I think I think shit like that happens quite a bit. Uh, another thing I uh, uh, before we end here, um, after all this research, I, I wonder like what happened to all his money uh, after he died? Did it go to his wife and kids? What happened to them? Well, no one knows exactly what happened to all the money, uh, but the various international banks probably took some where he had it deposited. Um, Cali Cartel probably took a lot from his hidden fucking locations. You know, governments of the countries that held those international banks uh, took some. U.S. and Colombian governments, I'm sure, took some. And uh, yeah, and then maybe his family got a little bit. Uh, Juan Pablo, his sister and his mom, fled Colombia to Mozambique in Africa after his death. They obtained a tourist visa from there to enter Argentina. And then there they lived a quiet middle-class life in a Buenos Aires uh, apartment equipped with multiple housekeepers until 1999. So they must have found, you know, some of the money. And then five years into their new life, word got out in Argentina uh, of who they really were. And in 2000, Maria Victoria and her son were arrested on money laundering charges. That was the new name she took. Escobar's widow was allegedly receiving illegally earned money from Colombian drug lords in Uruguay. And, uh, and they were held in jail for 15 months, uh, which is actually longer than Pablo was ever incarcerated or about the same time he spent in his uh, fucking palace. And then authorities released them based on insufficient evidence. And, uh, and, then, they, and then the son uh, in, in Argentina, uh, he went to school, became an architect, uh, was in a documentary in 2009 called Sins of My Father. 
Uh, he's spent a lot of his uh, last, last couple of years trying to apologize to uh, victims of his of his father, show that you know uh, violence doesn't have to be transmitted from one generation to the next. Uh, little is known about Pablo's daughter, uh, born in 1984. Manuela's life uh, with her father was cut short. You know, Escobar's acquaintances, uh, survivors, uh, recall Manuela, uh, Manuela uh, as her father's spoiled little princess. Uh, when Escobar, check, check this out. When Escobar, Escobar's daughter wanted a unicorn, for example, he bought her a horse and fucking stapled a cone to its head and wings to its back. And then the horse later died of an, an infection caused by all this. Ah, so, you know, his unicorn surgery was unsuccessful. Um, when, uh, when Manuela asked her dad how much a billion dollars was, he responded, the value of your eyes, my princess. Uh, Escobar even forced one of his mistresses to get an abortion when she became pregnant because the drug lord had promised his daughter she would be the last of his line. Uh, you know, whatever she wanted, she got, except for a life of peace and safety and, and, and a dad who wouldn't get shot to death. And then nobody really knows where she is now. Man, fucking crazy shit. Born poor. Became one of, if not the wealthiest man in the world, and then died uh, essentially with nothing, cut off from his family at 44. You know, researching his life, he kept thinking about how surreal it all sounded, but that it was totally real. Like he actually led that life. Can you imagine waking up as Pablo at the height of his power in the mid 80s when your organization that you created, making half a billion dollars a week, you know? When for all intents and purposes, your country answers to you, when you own a fleet of planes, a fleet of jets, your fucking own zoo. I wonder if you ever in a private moment just thought, get the fuck out of here. Is this shit really happening? Am I really this rich and powerful? Little old me? Son of a farmer and a school teacher? A poor kid from Medellin who once went to school barefoot because my parents couldn't afford to buy me goddamn shoes? And now I decide who lives? Who fucking dies? You know, but he also had to always watch his back. Had to make sure someone wasn't going to pull a bullet in his head. Make sure someone was going to bump him off the throne. You know, and so much hiding from people trying to capture him. How fun was that? Could have been, must have been horrible, especially when you got a family, man. It's complicated. Too complicated for me. Maybe I'm just not as uh, am, am, that ambitious, but but it did make for an interesting life, you know, one we still want to hear about. Fuck, I'm sure this is the longest time I've done at this point, and it could be four times this long with all the shit out there about him. Uh, I'm sure more movies and shows are going to be made about him. And, and, and now, before I'm done with him, let's suck on him just a bit more with some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, after killing numerous government officials, blowing up a plane, and having over a thousand police officers killed, Pablo turns himself in to serve a five-year prison sentence in a prison he built, guarded by men he chose, visited by prostitutes he also chose. Fucked up, but also fucking impressive to be able to pull that off. Number two, he stapled a horn to a horse's head and wings to its back to give his daughter a unicorn. Again, fucked up, but also fucking impressive in a sick way. In a very demented way, his dad game was pretty on point. What well, little girl doesn't want a unicorn? Number three, he had a Learjet specifically used to transport giant piles of cash, and he still ended up losing millions to rats when he ran out of places to put it. You might be balling in your life, but unless you have a flying, but unless you're flying a plane of cash to a rat-infested cash warehouse, you're not Pablo balling. All right. Number four. To me, the most impressive number that surrounds Pablo had nothing to do with money. It's the twenty-five thousand people came to his funeral. How many other career criminals can claim that? Evil or not, the man clearly had some serious fucking charisma. Number five, Coca-Cola is a product of racism. How weird is that? At least one good thing came from horrible bigotry, I guess. Because Coke is fucking delicious, especially cherry Coke. All right, can we agree on that? And without Coke, we wouldn't have Diet Coke. And without Diet Coke, we wouldn't have Michael McDonald's jingle. 
What's that cool going down? What's the chill rushing through me? What's that all that takes your breath away? Time suck. Top five takeaways. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that sweet suck as much as I did. Not sure if that episode uh, made me ever want to do coke again or if it made me want to do coke every fucking day. Probably going to stick with never again. Uh, why are so many fun things bad for you? I uh, got some upcoming shows I want to mention. I'm going to be at the uh, University Inn in Moscow, Idaho for two shows next Saturday, May 6th, 6 and 9 p.m. You can call 208-882-0550 for tickets. Uh, if you want to come, it's going to be a good time. It's going to be a fun show in a fun college town. I'm also going to be at the Historic Punchline Comedy Club in San Francisco, May 10th through the 13th. And I will be just north of Los Angeles at Levity Live in Oxnard, California, May 26, 27, and 28. And very excited for Monday's episode. It's going to be Designer Babies, Genetic Modification. What brave new world are we entering? What Pandora's box are we about to open? You know, the science of being able to choose your baby's eye color, height, health, intelligence, etc., etc., uh, has already begun. Uh, geneticists are working right now on the genetic modification of human embryos. Sounds kind of good on the surface, right? To guarantee new parents a healthy, well-adjusted, beautiful child. But what fucking shitstorm is that going to lead us into? You know, could a rogue nation create a race of superhuman soldiers? Maybe. Could our nation truly enter a new phase of the haves and have-nots where the wealthy are able to scientifically evolve their kin, right? And eventually themselves. Uh, and then the poor are just completely left behind. Truly unable to bridge the gap because they literally don't have what it takes inside of them to compete with these new superhumans. Crazy, crazy shit. Find out how close we are to the possibility of a very, very new reality. And so much more this Monday on Time Suck. And until then, keep both eyes peeled for Bojangles One Eye. And you keep on sucking. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But... What you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. 
Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeZuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeZuck.